I've already talked a little bit about the the Sony slash Marvel situation that was leading up to this because, I mean, it was a bit of a mess, wasn't it? But just to reiterate, in case you didn't catch it there, one of the things was that Marvel and Sony had actually tried to cross over the MCU with the what at the time was the Spider-Verse more than once. And each time things just kind of fell through. When it finally came to the point where they were in the middle of discussions for his appearance in Civil War, well... Part of the problem was that they weren't aiming for just having him in Civil War and nothing else. Now, that was the original deal, and I think I mentioned that. It was just going to be a one-off, and then Tom Holland was going to be you know, Spider-Man over there. But they were like, no, 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 we, we want Spider-Man to be part of the continuity. We want to make him part of this world. Insert little mermaid joke here. So, as they were trying, it, it, they were playing hardball on this one, and finally Sony managed to capitulate on this one. Just like they did most recently last year when they allowed, you know, there to be two more Spider-Man films going forward. Now, on the one hand, you might be thinking, why would Sony be pushing so hard to not have it be in the MCU? Well, there's a lot of possible reasons there. But the long and the short of it is Sony has very, very much clung to the Spider-Man name because Spider-Man is one of the most well-recognized superheroes ever. He's almost up there with Batman and Superman. In fact, as far as Marvel heroes go, he is probably the most recognizable Marvel superhero for the last 30 years. So it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, even the X-Men as an aggregate may be equal up to one Spider-Man, right? So you can kind of see why they were like, no, no. But at the other hand, you can see why they finally capitulated. And the reason why is because the MCU is a financial juggernaut. So they're like, okay, okay, you know what? Better to have a piece of a pie than nothing at all. Because, like it or not, Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2 didn't really do all that well in the long term. Ticket sales were alright, but in terms of overall financial turnover, not that great. Meanwhile, the MCU is making money hand over fist, not just in the ticket sales themselves, but also in all of the subsequent money that comes in through toy deals and licensing deals and uh, the, the home video sales and rentals and just all sorts of stuff. You know, so they're like, okay, fine, fine, fine. So this leads to this film. They actually, once they finally acquiesce to that, they're like, okay, we're finally going to sit down. Now, I just want to mention something. We have Spider-Man Homecoming, Black Panther, Thor Ragnarok, Infinity War. Bam, 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 bam. In my opinion, four excellent films back to back. And I enjoy all of these, not just because all of them are building the framework for Infinity War and doing, basically putting the final pieces in position for Infinity War, but also because of the fact that they're also, they're really good films. And I know this is actually probably coincidental, but this is the first film that was officially Phase 3. I know that sounds like a strange statement, but let me rewind a second. Remember that big speech I gave about the Marvel Committee and Perlmutter? Well, that was still having bleed over into the previous films we've discussed, to some extent or another. This film is like, okay, now we're actually going to do our own shtick, finally. And we're going to be completely divorced from things, finally. It's like, huh, okay. Maybe we'll actually be able to make something good real quick. Actually, let me check something real quick. I just need to check a date. <sighs> no, that's phase two. I have a lot of notes up right here. Yeah, that's what I thought. <clears throat> now, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 was actually the first third phase three film. So I guess in the interest of fairness, I could mention that in there as well, given the timeline there. But still, this was a bang-up year. In fact, if you're paying attention, it's July-November for Spider-Man and Thor, and then Black Panther Avengers is February-April next year. Across two years, we get four excellent films back-to-back. And it kind of says something about the different format. Oh, don't mistake me, Guardians Volume 2 was very good, but you could probably part kind of see why I like these this quartet a little bit more. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. This is also interesting because John Watts uh, spent a lot of time working with the Russo brothers in, ter in terms of trying to build proper continuity. And everyone involved, including Feige, who, by the way, is an enormous Spider-Man fan, who has been wanting Spider-Man stuff in the MCU since the beginning. It's one of the reasons why he has pushed for these negotiations um, since the beginning. <laughs> when I say since the beginning, by the way, I mean when they were making Iron Man there were thoughts and talks going around of trying to get Spider-Man in, at least as a cameo, like the quick crossover stuff, right? 
and they were thinking about putting Stark over in the Amazing series. Yeah, that's how long this has been being pushed since the beginning. But what I, one of the things I find interesting is part of what gives Spider-Man his appeal is how down-to-earth he is, despite being relatively high-tier. Parker himself is definitely street-level, you know. Now, you might say, well, we've already had street-level, and you're right, because we've already had Daredevil, we've already had uh, Jessica Jones, we've, we've had S.H.I.E.L.D., which actually kind of was mid-level, but, you know, whatever. We've had the shows, but unfortunately or not, the MCU shows... I'm frowning because not because of their quality, which is irrelevant. It's because of their disconnect. The MCU shows have always been kind of in a bubble to the MCU itself, which, in my opinion, is an absolutely huge mistake. The one and only time they ever tried to do a direct crossover was with Civil War, or excuse me, with Winter Soldier and with S.H.I.E.L.D. And that was also kind of fallen apart, and then most of the rest of the shows were started and initiated under the reign of Perlmutter, who, as I mentioned before, wasn't was a bad influence on the MCU. Now, there's been talks going around that Feige didn't like the shows, and I, I haven't been able to substantiate that because I wasn't able to find anything that indicated he really didn't. But I bring all this up because this is the first time in the films we have had a street-level thing going on in the MCU. Now, <clears throat> I suppose the other interesting thing is that Spidey himself is actually mid-level. His power set is pretty high tier, relatively speaking. He is a genius, a bona fide genius who made his own web shooters in high school, for God's sakes. I mean, I don't even know what else to add to that. And has, you know, substantial strength and substantial durability and incredible agility and spider sense and amazing perception and the ability to stick to walls and all this stuff. He is a mid he is a mid tier hero. In fact, in many ways he is more than equal to the task of being a mainline adventure. But he's low tier. By that I mean he is low level. See, I hear people use the term level and tier basically equally, so it's hard to gauge it. His power set is mid tier. His territory is low tier. He's just running around trying to help people, right? Anyways, let's move forward. Because the next thing I want to talk about, and I wasn't just saying that for no reason, is Michael Keaton, who is absolutely amazing as Tombs, who I will probably call Tombs most of the time, but I just want to say that he's awesome. Because he's the exact same thing. Seriously, if you look at his tech and his gadgets and his experience with it, because he is using Chitauri tech, he is effectively mid-tier as well. But he's focusing on being low-tier, down here, under the radar, if you think about the kind of money he's making, you might be like, man, no wonder he's so rich. That's not rich. That's comfortable. And I'm not saying that to be dismissive. My point is that he's making decent money, like, by our standards. The money he makes yearly is a rounding error for someone who is actually rich. That's the point. He is mid-tier in low-tier, just like Parker. He also comes across very well as just a... Obviously, he's got an emotional problem. He was actually referred to as a psychopath by Aaron. But, you know, he's, he's got emotional issues. But ultimately, the man is really, really relatable, believable. Like, you could just see him working down the shop. I actually know people like him. And I get along with people, minus the violence and the crime thing. I get along with people like him. Because it's just, hey, on a day at work, yep, I'll make sure you get that thing up, you're right. Because there's a weird amount of casual competence in that kind of ground-level worker that I really appreciate. And, he, and Michael Keaton does a great job of. This then leads to damage control showing up. This, I've actually already talked about this, so forgive me for the repetition. This has always irritated me a little bit. So damage control comes in and takes over. No recompense. Why? Part of the point, like one of the major points of damage control, is to recompense, to fix and repair and pay for all of the collateral that I've talked about many times when it comes to the superhero stuff. Why don't they just recompense him for the trucks and for the gig and be like, here you go, your contract's paid, peace. It wouldn't even cost them much to buy out his contract, for God's sakes. But no, they just say, you're off, peace. That's actually stupid, just to be as blunt as I possibly can. And in fact, more or less deliberately leads to the creation of a supervillain. So good job on that one, guys. Anyways. 
This leads me to my other thought, and I am amazed someone like Stark has never thought of doing this. See, he's got damage control for the above-ground stuff. Someone like Tombs, with his contacts, with his know-how, with his abilities, would be invaluable to be also on the payroll. To keep the underworld under check, too. To keep the, the black market and smuggling rings and salvaging rings. To try and make sure that any of the, the, the tech or whatever that is being utilized... underneath the hood, so to speak, under the radar, is something that is still being kept track of. Not to stamp it out, but to try and make sure that... <sighs> Sorry, I just got an email that's really dumb. <laughs> that just really startled me. Um, to try and make sure that they're keeping tabs on it. To make sure it doesn't end up in hands it shouldn't be in. It's not like we haven't already seen that this is a problem. We saw this in Ultron. We're going to see this in Black Panther, for God's sakes. This is an issue. There is a criminal element interested in alien tech or magic tech or whatever. Wakandan tech, right? So it, it makes perfect sense to try and have some... I mean, God, it's just so duh to me. I can't believe no one thinks of that. <sighs> Anyways... So then we start off with, you know, Parker doing a video. Hey, look, it's me, and I'm recording the video. And it's awesome. I, I, I have to say, part of why I like Tom Holland so much is his genuine enthusiasm is so infectious. He's just he's just like a kid in a candy strike. Oh, my God, look, this is so cool. This is the most coolest thing ever. Oh, oh that's my cue. That's my cue. Whoosh, ah, hi, everyone. Yeah, yeah. Comes back, sorry, sorry, I just, oh my god, I just stole Captain America's shield, it was so cool, and I just did this, and, oh god, okay, hang on, the small man's big now, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go. <laughs> I love it, I love it, it was so amazing. It was also a good way to segue audience members in who weren't completely familiar with, or had forgotten, or had never watched, Civil War who just came to see a Spider-Man film so they can kind of see the connecting threads. And it gives us an insight into what was happening that led into and out of that. <sighs> Poor Happy. <laughs> you can tell Happy's not really a, a, a kid person. And he, he's trying. But you can tell he's just like, kid, kid, please, I'm just... Come on, this is a Tuesday for me. Let's go. Poor Happy. He's... <laughs> He's pretty much the uh, the Alfred of the MCU. Anyways, <clears throat> so then they do the smooth transition between this and actually the film. And this leads to Tony Stark, who he's trying so hard to be this dad figure. And you can tell he has absolutely no idea to do it. And remember, historically speaking at this point in time, Stark is basically losing his mind as he's descending because of all the problems that just happened with Civil War. So you can tell he's he's not doing great. He's not in the most emotionally stable part of his life. We'll call you... Okay. They never actually bring Spider-Man in officially. Why? Because of the Sokovia Accords, which are name-dropped in the, in the movie, by the way, but only in the background. Just as a reminder that they're there. I only bring this up... I, I've never actually seen anyone discuss this, but this is... I, I've heard people like, God, why doesn't he just start officially coordinating with Spider-Man? Because of the Sokovia Accords! Because they, those were ratified. Because superheroes are regulated now. Because Iron Man technically is, a, is an agent of the United Nations. So he can't just act. So he has, he's trying, you can tell based on the movie, he's trying really, really hard to keep Parker off the radar. Now, I'm not saying Stark is completely blameless in this because of things I'll talk about later. But you can tell how he's just like, no, no, no missions, no, just, just stay here. Stay, be cool, okay? You know, do, do the neighborhood thing. We're not there yet. No hug. We're not there yet. So this then leads to Jacob Batalon. Batalon? I'm horrible with pronunciations. He plays Ned. And he is probably... I, oh, God, it's hard to pick a favorite thing about this film. Because there's so many good things. But he's one of my favorite things about this film, Absolutely. And I'll get more to him in just a second. We have the clock transition. There's a lot of smart transitions in this film. Did you know that uh, John Watts, this is like one of his first films ever? <laughs> I'd say it shows, doesn't it? But it totally doesn't. Here's the thing. And I've talked about this before. Marvel has a weird tendency. It started in Phase 2, and they really, they really pushed for it in Phase 3. Basically, they have a talent scout team, just like you would with a sports team. And these talent scouts go out, and they go and find people who are really good 
editors, directors, uh, visual effects people, uh, actors, actresses, you know, all of the people involved, and there's so many other roles I'm not listing because there's hundreds of people that make a film, but they have these talent scouts out and about looking for new, fresh, good talent. And historically speaking, they're pretty damn good at their job. And I point to this movie as a good example of this. Despite this being one of his premier picks, you can see the talent the man has for managing to maintain a degree of energy and pace in his editing and his presentation. It's good stuff. So, <clears throat> there's also, as a quick bit, he's leaving text messages constantly with Happy. He's calling, hey, hey. You know, just keep that in mind for the future. Um, we introduce Flash, who is, in this case, a rich kid who is a bully, modern modern bully. Uh, we're introduced to Liz, we're introduced to Ned, who's awesome, and Michelle, who is constantly keeping tabs on, on Peter because, well, he interests her. I'd say not romantically, but I've seen Far From Home. But even if she wasn't interested romantically, like, even if she is romant interested romantically then, here it's made pretty clear that he's just interesting. So she keeps tabs on him. It's not quite stalker level. It's more, I have no idea how to approach you, so I'm just going to kind of hang out in the background because I don't know how to say, hey, let's be friends. I'd say I know what that's like, but I actually never was that kid. But I know a lot who were. And I was usually the one who said, hey, come on over. There's this one girl, uh, got all the way back in, this would have been fourth grade? No, 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 this would have been sixth grade. My bad, sixth grade. And she was super shy and didn't know how to express herself at all. And uh, me and my friends at the time, I, I guess I just shouldn't name names, uh, Bob and Bob 2 and Bob 3. It's the four of us. We were all guys. And we just hang out. And she was all super shy over there. And, and finally, I was just like, hey, what's going on? And I just kind of dragged her into the conversation. And she's like, uh, but it was okay because she really did want to be part of it because I was paying attention and you could you could just see the the inference there it's a shame of course that no one ever really tries to reach out to Michelle to do the same thing for her but whatever I suppose Stark Tech in the suit is awesome can I just say that's an awesome idea it makes perfect sense why wouldn't Tony put all of that tech into this suit he even if you pay attention some of the specific things he put in there makes sense because of stuff he's been through he even put in heating why you remember when he was, you know, out in, uh, oh, God, was it Minnesota or Michigan? I don't remember, but, you know, when he was freezing, you know, just, here you go, here's some heating tech. Anyways. <clears throat> so then he runs around and he starts helping stuff. <laughs> and when I say helping, I mean he helps a woman find where she's going and he stops a bike robber but you know he doesn't actually really make it better he tries to stop a what he thinks is a car robber but it's not him you, you left your keys in the car i've only done that like twice in my life and there's a reason for that because that is a nightmare situation to get around my god <laughs> that's not bragging that was horrible I once had to actually have a friend come from many, many miles away, like a half-hour trip, just to come rescue me from my carving, because I, I felt so damn stupid. Anyways, <clears throat> point being, yeah, I feel for that guy. And then he goes and he calls and he talks about the, the lady who gave him a churro, and he, just, he does all this stuff, right? And I want you to remember that, okay? And this is the exact moment I realized that I'm watching MCU Lower Decks. I've talked many times about the concept of a Lower Decks episode. It's named, for those of you who don't watch my other stuff, there's an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation called The Lower Decks. And it's a normal episode from the perspective of the people at the ground level, the ensigns and the lieutenants, rather than the command staff, right? And it, it actually, it's actually a really good episode, and it completely turns all of the usual tropes and concepts on its head because all of a sudden you're, you're doing this, looking up at it, rather than the usual view, which is up here looking down at it. And I've, I've always loved a good Lower Deck story. And as it happens, most Lower Deck stories tend to be good in one manner or another. And here we are. <laughs> because, again, Toombs himself is also Lower Decks. He's the guy under the radar. He's trying very hard to stay under the radar. No matter how many times Tinkerer over there keeps saying, hey, high pressure. No, no high pressure thing. Because the whole point is he needs to stay Lower Decks. He needs to stay low tier. To relate this in a, a sort of a strategy sort of a way, if you're an up-and-coming power, military, political, economic, one of the goals, this is a common 
concept. One of the goals is you want to stay small enough so that you don't get the attention of the people much, much bigger than you who can crush you like an ant. Because they can. They can just roll right over you unless you have some, some kind of lateral way of avoiding the conflict entirely. And you just want to not stay on their radar. We're just over here. You want to be big. But you want to be big to the people who are smaller than you. It's all relative. So you can kind of see how uh, how there's this wonderful balancing act that Toombs is doing the whole time. So, <clears throat> I have a note here. That poor Lego. The, the Death Star Lego. I actually don't want the Death Star Lego. No, the one I want is more expensive than that, if you believe it. It's the Star Destroyer one, which, as of me saying this, is not out. But by the time this video goes live, it will actually have come out. It's like $600 or something stupid. I can never waste money on something like that. My God, that's like a month's rent. Or half a month's rent. But the point being, that is way too much money for a toy. But still, I just... Oh, that poor Lego. Oh, I weep. I hope they didn't have to do two takes. Because that would really suck. Okay, we can bring in the second Death Star. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I like Marissa, Marissa Tomei as May. Marissa Tomei as May. God, that's such a weird sentence. I like the actress's portrayal as Aunt May. I do. I know some people are like, but I, I don't mind changing things. I never have as long as you do something good with it. And as it happens, I do think she does a good job with the role. She clearly comes across as someone who is supportive. She's, you know, the cool adult figure, as it usually is shown. But someone who does care. Someone who is involved in this. Someone who actually is trying very hard to reach out to her son. I know she, he's not biologically her son, but in every other way, he is her son. And you can tell that this means a lot to her and that she is trying. And she tries constantly throughout the film, which is interesting because it makes a nice parallel between Tony, who appears to not be trying, but in fact is trying just as hard. Just interesting contrast there. <sighs> Note that there's no smear campaign on Spider-Man in this. Do you catch that, right? They actually did make a point of that, and I like that. And it makes perfect sense. First of all, this is the MCU. Superheroes are relatively well-known, and there's no J. Jonah Jameson <laughs> yet. And as a consequence, no one's out there trying to deride or twist facts or fake news their way in order to make Spider-Man look like a villain. Which is awesome. Because it's nice to see that for once. I know that sounds horrible. One of the things I liked about Spider-Man PS4 is that even in-universe, J. Jonah Jameson was a joke. That people were... I mean, obviously people are always going to have differing opinions and disagree with each other on things, but for the most part, Spider-Man actually had decent press for once. I'm just kind of tired of the whole Spider-Man's awful thing, because... Anyways. So. <laughs> so this is when Ned is like, Oh my God, you're Spider-Man. And he just starts asking questions. So I said I'd talk about Ned later. Part of what I like about Ned is he is incredibly relatable. And I know what you're thinking, oh, Lord, you're just saying that because you're a total geek who's fat, to in case I will uh, punch you in the face and then move on. No, Ned is relatable. He's human. I want you to picture for a moment. Like, even at your current age, never mind when you were in high school, or if you are in high school, but even at whatever your current age is, imagine someone you're very close to, a, a close friend, you know, your buddy, you know, Pax for me, or Gary for me, or Third for me, or Guido for me. I got a lot of close friends. Rax, Bregwin. Anyways, let's imagine for a moment that someone really close to you, that you know, is just, hey, I'm, I'm, have superpowers. <gasps> oh my god, you have superpowers. How do they work? Can you do this? Can you, can you go, uh, can you fly? Um, do you have like venom web? Do you have venom at all? Do you lay eggs? Are you strong? Can you stick under walls? Like, just, there's so many questions, right? And he just, it, it's so relatable. I love it. I love it. Um, it's, it's actually one of the things I liked about, uh, Shazam, the Shazam film. It's one of the things they got right in that film, in my opinion, was the, the, okay, how, how does this work? How does that work? What do you do? You know, just, it was very relatable, very, very human, and I love it. <clears throat> He's also pretty damn smart. Because, you know, he's the guy in the chair. He's not, he's not quite Oracle, but you know, he's getting there. So this is when we have our first big hint of something that I'll talk about in a minute. Um, there's a really, really big... Uh, Liz's house is really big, very fancy. Like, that house is probably in the million range. Uh, actually, oh, I, I totally meant to look this up. Hang on. It's very expensive, though. It's in the New York suburbs. 
don't worry, I actually have a house app here because, of course, I do. I'm I'm in I'm my late thirties. <laughs> Why wouldn't I? Okay, so let's just check out New York real quick here. Let's just see what housing costs right now. Just any house. Just give me a moment. Give me a moment. Because there, this is oh my god, the amount of money. I, as I said, he's not really rich, but you got to kind of figure how rich he is. Okay, so there's New York proper. So there's Newark. Uh, let's zoom out a little bit more. Here we go. So let's see how much stuff costs over here. Uh, let's just pick a random example. What do we got? Come on, load. I know there's like a billion houses for sale. This is always the problem when you search geographically. There's You ever look it up? There's like hundreds, literally hundreds of homes in every city for available for sale at any given point in time. It's just weird. Okay, so here's a house that looks eh, a little bit bigger than his house. It's 1.6 million. Uh, this one is 1.2 million. This one's 1.3 million. I'm trying to find one that's kind of similar. Oh, that one's pretty similar. Even this one, like, okay, a house that's, like, probably about twice the size of my apartment, 700,000. You get my point. Obviously, I'm just making the point. He has, She lives in a very nice place for the area. And even though I made that whole shtick about him not being rich, because he's not, by our standards, by the low-tier standards, he's pretty high-tier. This also leads to Donald Glover showing up, which I wish we saw more of him. I know he's playing Prowler here. Uh, which, I, I gotta go ahead and be honest, I barely knew what that meant at the time. And then I saw Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, where Prowler was incredibly amazingly awesome, and one of my most memorable parts of the film. <sighs> Anyways, <clears throat> Glover does a good job with, with just the casualness of the role. And you know, I'm not trying to blow people up, you know, I'm not... What are you doing, kid? I just well, we do have the anti-gravity things, really? <clears throat> Then Spidey shows up, and he's like, hey, you know, shoot at me if you got to shoot something. This leads to some collateral damage. You know, a treehouse, the, the tent, uh, he's doing a cookout, you know. Little stuff, little stuff, a shed, you know. Keep that in mind for later, though. So, of course, collateral damage happens. And... <laughs> it, it, even, you ever watch any film ever where someone is chasing someone else with a vehicle and they've got guns? And they're like... They never shoot for the tires. They never aim for the tires. I've played Grand Theft Auto. You aim for the tires first thing. It doesn't stop them, but it slows them down. Actually, I am told that some real-life enforcement agencies actually do are trying to aim for the tires, which is just even weirder. But even Spider-Man doesn't aim for the tires, although I'm not sure what the webbing would do for those. Either way, he then interacts with Tombs, and now is a good time to gush about the suit, because the suit looks really, really cool! Oh my god, how did they take Vulture and make Vulture cool? Well, I'll tell you how they did it. They really sat and they thought about it, and they made him have a Chitari Tech flight suit, which, in addition to looking very cool, is extremely utilitarian. And they had Michael Keaton playing him. Holy crap. I'm sorry for gushing. The, the, the slicers and, and the, the separate hovers in addition to the wings themselves in order to maintain glide and the, the nature of how the, it's, the whole thing is just awesome. The grippers on the legs. Oh, I love it. I love it. I want that suit in real life. I, I would just use it to go to the grocery store and back and maybe take my niece to the park. But, you know, it's, it would be so awesome. All right, kiddo, you got, you're in book? Yes, I'm in good, uncle. Okay. Okay, here we are. Okay, you want to play on the swings? Here. Okay, I probably wouldn't actually do that, but it would be really cool. <clears throat> He's tossed into the lake. And you notice the suit is kind of awkwardly animated, which makes sense because it's remote-controlled right now. I only point that out because it helps to show the attention to detail they put into this film, and is in contrast to later. This is probably when one of the better parts of the film happens. There's actually two little parts. This is one of them. Because Stark is talking to Peter and is like, hey, I'm not actually here. I'm, I'm off busy. I sent a suit remote control. Thankfully... I had good Wi-Fi out here, but, um, <clears throat> yeah, so, what the hell, kid, what are you doing? And Parker's like, oh my god, he's selling weapons, and he's putting weapons in the street, and blah, blah, blah. Now, what Tony said, should have said, this is where Tony kind of comes into blame, is he should have said, okay, that's good intel, I'm going to forward it to the people who are going to take care of this. Like, he he does kind of hint at that. This is, you know, this is for people who deal with this sort of thing. The Avengers? No, this is beneath them. And he's right. 
Toomes is beneath the Avengers by design. He has been trying very hard to be beneath the Avengers. I mean, right? That makes sense. But <clears throat> here, he does actually briefly mention there are people who deal with that kind of thing. What he should have said, and... Well, I'll get to it later. Point being, he doesn't say anything. He just says, go home. Go help people like that lady that bought you the churro. And that's the key part. You know what that means? Me and Sis caught it both immediately when we saw it. It's like, oh my gosh. He did listen. He probably listens to every single phone call and every text that Parker sends in. 100%. For two months, he's probably been listening to those. I guarantee. That's interesting. Because Stark, he's a messed up person. We've known this from the beginning. But to say that he doesn't care is factually untrue. Demonstrably untrue, as I like to call it. Because you can prove that Tony Stark cares. And that line right there, that proves that the individual, Tony Stark, does care about the individual, Peter Parker. He was paying attention. He just doesn't know how to show any of it. <clears throat> so, there's this interesting bit where we cut back to Tombs. And he's talking to Shocker 1. I don't even remember his name. Pulls a gun and vaporizes him. Actually, incinerates him, to be more accurate. And he says, I thought this was the anti-gravity gun. Now, that's important because it helps to establish something that's very important about Toombs' character. He's not broken up about killing a guy. That doesn't bother him at all. Why would it? The man just threatened his family. So he is totally justified in killing him. But it's interesting to note that that's not what he did on purpose. That is something to keep relevant. There is a difference between I am willing to kill and I am taking deliberate effort and interest in killing. You know, first degree, premeditated, etc., right? And that distinction is very important for Toombs' character, I think. It helps to differentiate him from someone like, say, Mac Gargan. <clears throat> so. <laughs> uh, everyone immediately accepts Parker back into the team, because Flash sucks that hard. And we find out about the training wheels protocol. And, of course, by this point, the theme is overall very obvious. Now, I'm going to stop and talk about this here, if I may, real quick. As I've said many times, I've actually done creative writing classes back in the day. Uh, obviously, I'm not saying this with pride. That's not the point. Uh, in fact, I was probably one of the worst teachers in the world. No, the relevant point is, though, that I rem I'll never forget the biggest piece of advice I kept giving writers. And I've, I've given writers even afterwards. It's not to rush to the good stuff. I know. I know exactly how that feels. I know exactly what that writing instinct is. You're sitting here. You're writing your intro. You're doing your establishment. You're doing your build-up. It's like, oh, I just want to get to the really cool stuff. I want to get to the big reveal. I want to get to the big action sequence. I want to get to the drama. Whatever the core is of your work, you just want to get there, right? Don't do that. Don't do that. Build up to it. Take your time. Establish it first. Work up to it. If I, I remember reading uh, someone's work once, and I'm not going to name names, obviously, and it was basically on the first page, like this, you know, college ruled, here's the person, and then here's their things, and then right here the big reveal happened, halfway down the page, and I'm like, no, don't do this. You have to, it doesn't mean anything. If you start, if you're going to start with this, you should start with this, first of all, but if you're, it, it, you're playing this as if it's some kind of big impactful moment, you need to push this back 20 or 30 pages, right? Now, this is relevant to this movie because that is Parker right now. He just wants to get to it. He just wants to be an Avenger. Come on! I have all this power and I can do all these things and I want to help. I just... I don't want to do this low-level stuff. I don't want to learn or build up or establish or anything. I just want to go and be an Avenger. And can you blame him? How many of you out there, if you had Parker's level of power, which again, mid-tier, his actual power set and kit is mid-tier. <laughs> he's, he's arguably higher tier than Falcon, for example, although Falcon obviously has a lot of experience on him. Anyways, if you were that mid-tier, wouldn't you want to be an Avenger? Wouldn't you want to officially join up and do missions and help save the world and make the world a better place? God, I cannot be the only person who thinks that would be amazing. It is Ned who points out the obvious. You are a kid, Parker. You're 15. He's 15 at this point in time, historically. I remember what I was like when I was 15. I wasn't ready for that kind of thing then. 
I mean, it doesn't matter if you have a good heart. You need a whole lot more than a good heart to be able to, to handle that, that tear. You need to build up first. Now, on the one hand, that all makes sense, and that all is, is the theme of the work. On the other hand, God, I hated school so much. It's so hard for me to say this. I had a bad experiences with school. I, I hated school. I hated it so much. I couldn't wait to get out of it. Oh, my God. I have nothing but bad memories up until high school. And even then, I only have good memories from my last three years, or two years, excuse me, at high school. And then college. Let's not even get into college. Now, part of that's probably because I live in the United States, which has the worst schooling in the universe. That's, okay, that's an exaggeration. But I'm not fond of the schooling here in the States, the state schooling. And so that's probably coloring my opinion. But at the same time, if, I, I just want to make it clear because this is how Parker remains relatable. You have all this power and access and knowledge and you're going to school, to that crap school that you hate, while you want to go out and do something that actually means a damn. Think about that for a moment. You can also kind of tell how much this is stressing Parker. He is basically tearing himself up emotionally and mentally throughout most of the film trying to deal with this. <clears throat> so, they decide to go swimming, which is apparently a rebellious activity. How is going swimming in a hotel at a decathlon or a bit? Whatever, I'm not even going to get into it. But of course, as usual, Parker can't manage both lives, which is probably one of the most common overall elements of the Spider-Man mythos, is that he can't balance both sides of his existence. This leads to Jennifer Connelly as Karen, a.k.a. Paul Bettany's wife. Get it? I will say there's something brilliant about introducing Karen into this. And the, the biggest reason I say that is because Spider-Man is known for his internal monologue. I've read the comics, but you can't have it... In, I mean, you can have him just talk to himself, and it's, it's possible to pull that off. See The Witcher 3 for a good example of that. But... It takes a, it, it takes something to make that happen, and I'm not sure that they had that here. So instead they introduce a voice into his suit, which A, makes perfect sense. It's a Stark suit. Why wouldn't it have a voice? And B, allows him to have some kind of internal monologue. It's not quite internal monologue, but you can see how it now helps him to get a lot of his thoughts out, because he doesn't have to hide anything from this voice. It's basically him talking to himself. So, now this is this is critical around just about everyone else, he's got some kind of a mask on or another. But when he's talking to Karen, he is 100% himself. Not Parker, not Spider-Man, himself. And that's important, because it gives us our true, real insight into the individual in that suit. And she does a good job of it, of course. Notice they even mention they're still cleaning up after the Triskelion mess. Nice little reference. I've said it before, little bits of continuity are the kind of things that I tend to enjoy. Oh, don't mistake me. I love a good string continuity storyline. But little bits of connectivity have always been enjoyable. The Triskelion thing was the Winter Soldier incident, by the way, with the helicarriers. Anyways. So Karen talks to him for a while. Stuff happens. By the way, real quick, before I forget to mention it. You notice the white-haired woman back in the high school? What do you want to bet that was Felicia? So it is nice to see at the DC trip that the staff is at least partially competent. They make things worse, but they, do, they are competent, and at least they don't shoot Spider-Man on sight, so that's nice. And, as usual, even though there's an initial misunderstanding, it makes sense. There's a guy walking up the side, so they don't know who this is. And remember, Sokovia Accords... So they're like, all right, he's an unregistered, but that doesn't mean he's a bad guy. And it looks like he's trying to help the situation, but we're not sure, so let's just give him a warning. And he's like, okay, i got to get in there, and he saves them. And so, okay, he saved them. He's on our side. We're not going to try and bring him in, but he is violating. Where'd he go? And then he vanishes under the... I, I, I've always liked to think that Tony helped to push that under Ross's radar. Just a little thought of mine. In fact, I like to think that he did a lot of work to keep him under the radar for Ross. I mean, would you really want Parker under Ross? Because I wouldn't. Anywho. <clears throat> so, <laughs> there's also this really funny part where Karen's like... She, Karen is so wonderfully innocent because Karen's an AI. And so Karen's like, hey, this is your big chance. Kiss her, Parker. And Parker's just like, uh... uh. Thankfully, he falls before anything stupid happens. Also, notice that they cut to tombs. Now, this is a, this is hint number two, by the way. Tombs is talking about... Actually, it's technically hint number three if you count the drawing in the beginning, because that was drawn by Liz. But um, 
he's talking and he's talking to his guys. It's like, all right, you know, we need, we, oh God, we're running out of things. We've got this one last thing, right? Yeah, we've got the one last thing. But after that, you know, we're done. We don't have any resources. Okay, we're going to have to figure something out. And then he sees the news. And Michael Keaton, credit to him, has a very subtle reaction visibly. Like his face just goes, that's it. That's all we see. And at first glance, it looks like he's reacting to the Spider-Man, who is the one who's screwing with up. But in hindsight, he's reacting because Liz is there. In fact, the very next scene, it's a cut shot, is to Liz being embraced by her mother. So then he goes in and is brought in by Principal Morita. That made me smile. He even, he's even got a picture from, uh, from the Howling Commandos back in World War II. Nice touch. Nice touch. Same actor. And... He's like, okay, no, I've got to figure this out. I've, I've got to deal with this. You don't understand. So he goes and he interacts with Aaron Davis, who, again, Glover does a great job with it. I, I loved him in Solo, by the way. I just want to say, I like him in just about everything I see him in, so I guess there's that. And, uh, yeah, I got a nephew. Now, I want to point out this scene, though, the scene with him and Prowler, because it's the first time Peter Parker, that is to say, let me realize that, it's the first time Spider-Man really succeeds at what he's doing because he stops trying to pretend to be something he isn't. He walks up, oh, you're going to tell me where this is. <laughs> and of course, Glover's just, I mean, Davis, Aaron Davis, he's just walking circles around him verbally, like, dude, you need to get better at this part of the job, okay? This just, this ain't your shtick, okay? I mean, seriously, dude. I got ice cream in here. You going to let me out? Dude, you're going to, come on, man. It'll, it'll dissolve in two hours. No, dude. Um... <clears throat> But it's a really good scene, and of course it lays the, the foundations. He does actually refer to a, a Miles uh, in the, in the post-credits thing, and he talks about his nephew. And of course, the whole point is, he, Parker's been spending the whole movie trying to be someone he isn't, on both sides of the coin. Here he just opens up. It's like, look, dude, those weapons are getting out there, and they're on the street, and they're causing an issue, and they broke down the... Uh, I forget it. It's, it's the, the, the sandwich shop. And that's what catches his attention. Like, oh, that sandwich? Yeah, it's the best stuff in Queens. Ah, it's not a good this other place. They have too much bread. I like bread. And they just there's just this natural back and forth as he connects with the real person there. And that's what convinces him to help him. By being himself, he actually succeeds. Now, of course, that's not always going to work, but that is the main point of the film, isn't it? Trying to be yourself rather than push forward to the Good stuff. So then we see Mac Gargan. For those of you who don't know the name, that would be Scorpion. Although I imagine if you watch this far into this video, you probably know who Gargan is. The, the actor they pick comes across as suitably, I'm an evil criminal psychopathy. You also get the impression that Tombs and the rest really don't like dealing with this guy. But whatever, you know. So... Two very important things happen. So first, he jumps in like, oh god, I'm gonna deal with this, you don't understand. Um, <clears throat> collateral. Collateral damage. Earlier in the film, Spider-Man, with his lack of real understanding, caused collateral damage, which caused a treehouse to fall over, or a shed to fall in. Or he knocked over his tent accidentally. That's it. That's all. Here, a ferry in the middle of the, I forget the name of the water body, is falling apart. And that's a huge amount of financial damages and, of course, the possibility of loss of life. That, that's a pretty big issue. But that's the point. This is, this is literally him playing above his pay grade and seeing what collateral damage can be like at a higher pay grade. Civil War was almost entirely about collateral damage and the consequences both at the individual and the macroscopic perspective of that. Spider-Man hasn't even begun to understand or appreciate that yet. He's still trying to figure all this out. He's just looking at it as there's the bad guy and i got to stop him. But then the FBI show up. Now, he does assist the FBI, and I point that out because that's probably part of why he's cool after this. And again, lack of bad press. Good. But of course, <laughs> why were the FBI there? Who do you think called the FBI? As he calls him, and he's, he's trying to figure out things. He says, I'm at band practice. I thought you quit band practice six weeks ago. That's point number two, that he's paying attention, that he really is actively following along with Parker's life. You'll also notice Tony calls him. This is a bloody subtle point. See, in Civil War, we find out that Pepper and Stark have kind of separated, trying a separation thing. 
it is implied that it's because he's just and that does make sense because he does go a little in Civil War. Civil War then bleeds naturally into the events of this film and then this film kind of keeps going, right? I point all this out because he is with Pepper at the end. And we can pretty much track relatively when he gets back together with her. Because I bet you money the first thing he did after getting back together with her and the two talking about it is he reaches out to Peter independently by himself on his own. Hi, I'd like to, hey, listen, I'm trying to do the dad thing and, you know, I don't know how to do it. My, my father, you know, I'm trying to break the cycle of blah, blah, blah. And he just, he opens up in a way that he hadn't before. Wonderfully subtle point. But, of course, also very accurate because he was doing that. As I said, demonstrably, he's been doing this this whole time. It's just, he doesn't know how to say it. He doesn't know how to express it. <laughs> so, Iron Man comes in and helps. you notice the animations on this Iron Man are much more fluid, which makes sense because that's actually still Tony in the suit. And Parker is, of course, pissed off because he feels abandoned and he feels alone. And he even, he even outbursts. You know, I, you're not even, you don't even care enough to be here. And then Stark just walks right out. And you notice Parker just recoils. Now, that's a nice touch for several reasons. First, because it, it's kind of the dad turning like, okay, son, you know, you're in trouble now, kind of a thing. But more to the point, the man who has no superpowers whatsoever walking out of his super-armored death tank is what terrifies the kid who could probably break his bones in a second flat. Because Stark doesn't need the suit. Not really. Not to be who he is. That was his whole character arc in Iron Man 3, after all. And I know some of us like to forget Iron Man 3, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, I wanted you to be better. I wanted you to be better than me. Who do you think called the FBI? Who do you think was listening this whole time? It's not like Stark didn't care. It's not like Stark wasn't paying attention and working with him. It's just he wasn't working with him the right way. This, by the way, this is the difference between Tony Stark and Captain Rogers. Rogers is in many ways a people person. His greatest status is charisma. Oh, sure, he's got skill and experience and strength and agility, but no, 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 no. What makes him Captain Rogers is the fact that he knows how to connect people together. He knows how to coordinate. He knows how to be the captain, the squad leader. And I point that out because that is not Tony. Tony doesn't know how to do that. Tony doesn't know how to reach out to this kid or to be what he wants to be to this kid. So he's just flailing. He, he could have done so many things so much better. And this is why I say that Tony Stark is not blameless here. Because he could have admitted, he could have told him, hey, I took your weapons thing, I've passed it forward to the FBI, a little bit of CIA action, they're going to be looking into it, good job. That's all it takes. Now, I know that because I'm a people person. But I'm not Tony Stark. That's probably a good thing. <laughs> I don't want bone cancer going through my, keeping my brain. God, that was such a weird story arc. Let's, let's move forward from that. Um... So, you're losing the suit. Why? No, I, I'm, I, this is all I've got. If you're nothing without the suit, then you shouldn't have it. And by God, he'd know. Right? So, this leads to the normal life montage, which is something that happens a lot in Spider-Man films. What's most amusing is he has so much relief. He is so much more at ease. All that pressure is gone. All that push, all of that tearing himself apart stress is gone. All he, he can just live his life. And he's, he, this is something he never realized he, he wanted. But now that he's doing it, you can see how much he's just feeling so much better. And it's a very light moment. It's a very happy moment. And that's good because the next thing that happens is he opens the door and he sees tombs. That is a brilliant brilliant reveal if i might say so i'm gonna go ahead and admit something to my shame i didn't call that when i saw this in the theaters i really didn't it caught me completely by surprise you should have heard my audience audible <gasps> i just oh god because everyone knew what that meant immediately as soon as we see him there at liz's house it's oh god he's why He's the money. He's her father. Oh, God! All his talk about family and... Oh, it all suddenly just clicked instantly. 
How many of you caught it or didn't catch it your first time through? I'm just curious. Because that was a bloody amazing reveal, the way it was presented. God, I loved that. And, of course, Michael Keaton plays it perfectly, and so does Holland. You'll notice that it takes Holland minutes to recover to the point of being able to talk normally. He is just... Uh, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, it's, he's never been a good liar. <laughs> and he's never been... He's just... He just goes into total catatonic shock. Like, okay, yeah. We'll, we'll go, have a smile. And he's just looking over at Tombs like... It takes him a very long... It takes him basically until the end of the scene for him to start recovering. You don't have to drive us. No, no, it's okay. It's on my way to a flight. And, okay, okay. <laughs> and then, of course, Liz, who is just innocently sharing information, shares just enough information about certain events that allows Tombs to put it together. Because he's not stupid. I mean, he's not a super brain genius like Parker is, but he's not stupid. I mean, God's sakes. He also, uh... <laughs> he was there at each of the incidents referenced. That's kind of part of the point. Or at least he was here at one of them. He also knows of the other one because, you know, Spider-Man was there because he saw it on the TV earlier. He was so freaked out because his daughter was there, right? And so he puts it together. And this then leads to a wonderful scene. In fact, it's, it might be my favorite scene in the film. Because it's just Michael Keaton, and the music is just getting darker and darker and darker and darker. And there's just this beat that's increasing the background. Excuse me, one moment. And Michael Keaton is, of course, dialing it up to 11. And he comes across as absolutely terrifying outside of the suit. He is his most terrifying when he's not in this giant death suit of doom. He's just a dude talking to Parker. And that says a lot right there. And that's part of why I fell in love with this character so much. And I do hope we see tombs in the future to some extent because, damn, just, woo. <laughs> so, <clears throat> this is when we put together the big thing. The thing that Tinkerer has been hinting at the entire film. See, the, and it's all obvious now why it is that Toombs has been, has been avoiding doing this big, you know, high-pressure suit gig. It's because, no, we need to stay under the radar. We have to stay under the radar. But after the ferry incident, they're on the radar. Iron Man himself showed up. So now that they are on the radar, well, it's do or die, isn't it? So since they already know about us, fine. Let's go for it. And let's steal actual Stark tech which will seriously put them on the radar. And if we're being honest, as, as horrible as this may sound, I've heard some people speculate on how bad it would have gone if they'd actually st stolen it. Stark puts trackers in all of his things. Not just the plane. Like, all of that tech, I guarantee you, there's trackers everywhere. He would have found out relatively quickly. He would have come in on it relatively quickly, and that would have been the end of the vulture. Just my take on that. Because he was playing above his pay grade. And there's consequences for doing that, like I hinted at earlier with the whole, you know, small country analogy. But Parker, he looks at this and it takes him a good minute or two to decide. Until finally he's like, yeah, okay, I, I need to do this. When you have the kind of powers that he has and bad things happen and you, you didn't do anything, that's on you. So he runs to the school, and that's where he encounters Shocker. Uh, that is to say, Shocker 2. Tiny little note, they never actually explain how Shocker 2 knew to go there. They never actually go into that. He's just there. That is, of course, leads to Ned being incredibly awesome as the guy in the chair. Yeah. Sorry, I like Ned, as I think I've already elucidated upon. It's funny, because he's like, oh god, I'm finally being the guy in the chair, and he's barely keeping up. This then leads to... A great scene where Tombs talks about guys like us. They don't care about us. We build their roads, we fight their wars, but they don't actually give a damn. We live on their table scraps, and I know you know what that means. Now, what's interesting to me is he really, he goes into this whole spiel, and he's kind of right. That's part of what makes Tombs such an interesting, relatable character in his own right. Oh, he's a villain. Again, he, he's probably a psych, well, not a psychopath. He's probably a little bit sociopathic, though. But this is someone who, uh, 
He's blue collar. This is his nine to five. You'll notice that he never goes out of his way to try and poison the gas main or murder this. And he never takes... It. One of the things that they kind of screwed up with Dr. Octopus in the second Raimi Spider-Man film, as much as I like that film, was they made him just kind of jump into the villain pool and all of a sudden he just started doing villainous things because he was a villain. Toombs doesn't do that. Toombs has a motivation. Toombs has a goal. Toombs has a job. Like I said, this is a nine to five. So everything he does is not to try and hurt or harm others, although his actions do indeed cause harm to others, but it's all indirectly. There's no, I'm going to murder this person, or I'm going to take this person hostage, or whatever, because he's not like that. Like the earlier point, he wasn't wanting to kill the guy, he just accepted killing the guy, and that is a distinction. So... That leads to probably my favorite scene. No, there's no problem. It's my favorite scene of the film. And, of course, it's based on one of the most iconic comics of Spider-Man ever, so that kind of helps. And this is one of the reasons I love Tom Holland, because he portrays a kid who's scared really, really well. I feel for him in that moment. He's under the rubble. And he stops being Parker, and he stops being Spider-Man. He's, he's just scared. He just can't help, and he, 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 he cries out. Please. Anyone, I'm down here and I can't move. But I, I'm just, help, please. Oh. oh, that scene hits. And it hurts. And you just look at him and you realize, but because of everything, because of the lineup and how this has come, even if someone does eventually come to help him, it won't, it'll be a long time from now. He's trapped there and he can't do anything about it. He sees the, the water reflection. He says, all right, screw it, I'm going to do it. And he slowly, very carefully pushes his way out. Because after all, as Into the Spider-Verse Spider Spider showed us, the one continuous tra trait and quality of any Spider-Man is that they get back up. So he does. Big epic fight. Um... You notice that the one box he was going to take as a as a you know bonus prize was the arc reactors. Holy crap! Think about that for a minute. <sighs> I'm just going to run through the last of this because, as usual, I don't have much to say about big action scenes. It's a good action scene. Don't mistake me. It's just okay. <clears throat> Parker saves Tombs, which is interesting in its own right. You, you can't tell me he didn't care. He can't tell me he didn't notice that. He's in this bed. You're, I'm trying to save you, you idiot! And for the first time ever, actually, Happy legitimately reaches out to Parker. And, and, and what I mean by that is not just that he's like, hey, Parker, let's go do that. No, what I mean by that is he treats Parker like someone he doesn't want to have nothing to do with. You know what I'm talking about. When someone's just like, I don't want to deal with you. That's what Happy's been this whole film. For the first time, he's just talking with him like he's a guy, like he's someone he can talk with. Check it out. Cool. Look, it'll drive itself. It's a neat little thing. Hey, check it. You know, just like a person talking to another person, which is good because that, that's going to continue in Far From Home. There's going to be a good thing going on there. And uh, we see the new Avengers HQ. Spoiler for Infinity War. That was, that was a test, right? That was a test. Yeah, that was a test. I have to admit, it feels a little weird for him to officially decline becoming part of the official Avengers. But at the same time, it also makes perfect sense because... Well, of everything that this whole film has been about. He looks at this, and it's what he always wanted, and he's finally getting it, and he's like, no, I, I don't think I'm ready. I'd like to go earn it first. Uh, several people would say he has earned it, and I would agree. But he still wants to go and live his normal life a little bit more and stay, you know, keep his ear to the ground a little bit more before he actually becomes official. <laughs> Which leads to... <laughs> Pots coming out. Where is he? You have the rink. You can. I've had this rink since 2008. I love that bit. I love that bit. We also see the Iron Spider. Nice little tease there. I love that suit, by the way. One of my favorite Spider-Man suits ever. And Aunt May finds out. Leading to a fundamental shift in the status quo going forward, which is good. In fact, every film Spider-Man's in has at least one major status quo shift in it, which is interesting, including Far From Home, by the way. Which is doubly funny since they made that not thinking there might be another one, because at the time, Sony negotiations, right? So that cuts us off. There's a mid credit scene, though, which I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about, where Tombs meets with Scorpion. I'm just going to call him what it is. 
And Scorpion, he's like, yeah, I know, I know a few men who'd like to reach out to him and cut his head off and put it in a dryer. And he says it so casually. And that's the difference right there between Tombs and Scorpion. Tombs then, of course, defends him. Says, nah, if I knew him, he'd be dead already. Tombs defends Spider-Man's identity. Doesn't have to. Because he's not that much of a monster. Because he's not that kind of a villain. Because just because you are a villain doesn't mean you are suddenly a villain across the board, like I referenced earlier with Otto Octavius. There's a difference between I'm willing to do evil acts and <laughs> dead puppies. And I do like that they show that. Although I'm curious, as always, why you think he did it. Respect? Because he owed him? For his family? For their family? Maybe because he, you know, saved his life? There's actually a lot of options there. I like the simplest answer. I think he did it because he looked at Gargan and was disgusted by him. And doesn't want that kind of scum going and, and just murdering some kid. No matter what he did to him and his family, he doesn't deserve that. That's the one I like to think. What do you guys think? Either way, we'll move forward. I forget which one's next, but like I said, we're in the big four now. <laughs> in the big build-up to Infinity War. So I'll be seeing you guys next time. Three to go.